Glad you could make it this morning. Keep in prayer the apologetics event. Um, the focus is the middle and high school kids there, but obviously if you want to come out and be blessed by that, come out and be blessed as well. If you are not coming to that, that's fine. Just keep it in prayer this afternoon. Just keep it in prayer this afternoon as we go along. And I also just want to reiterate, too, I know Renee mentioned it during uh, the announcements, a big thank you to all those that serve. You know, we pray out here on a regular basis how thankful we are to be able to meet freely and openly. And thank you to everybody that does serve as well. We appreciate that. So Acts chapter 11, if you weren't with us last week, We had a very important chapter of the gospel going to the Gentiles. Now, this doesn't carry a lot of weight with us right now because we've known this for thousands of years. Your entire existence, my entire existence, we as Gentiles, Gentiles means anybody not Jewish, we had the chance, the ability to accept Christ as our Savior. This is nothing new to us. 2,000 years ago, this was world-changing. Now, it was nothing new. This was fulfilled in the Old Testament. Prophesized, I should say, back in Isaiah that the gospel would go to the Gentiles. Jesus even mentioned it. It was just a matter of time until the door was open, and now the door was open. So, therefore, this is a life-changing, world-changing event. How is the church going to respond to this? So, let's pick it up here in Acts chapter 11. Now, the apostles and the brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, this is exciting. I was reading through the book of Luke. Okay, in Luke 15, when a non-believer gets saved, heaven rejoices. I mean, they they throw a party. It's a rejoicing up there. Now, we don't get that same excitement down here on earth, which is kind of a shame. To think that somebody has just been changed for eternity, went from hell to heaven, and and their life now is filled with the Holy Spirit. They have a calling, they have a purpose, they have the gifts. All this happens. Heaven says, this is exciting, this is rejoicing. I really try to keep it simple. If God loves it, I want to love it. If God hates it, I want to hate it. So if God loves the idea of a non-believer getting saved and heaven rejoices, then we should rejoice. The problem is, down here on earth, we don't rejoice, we criticize. Verse 2. When Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him. Some of your translations criticized him. I have noticed out here that any time God moves, there will always be opposition. That's just the way it is. Anytime we do a baptism service, I tell everybody getting baptized, you're taking a public step forward in your walk with Christ. There's going to be opposition. And speaking of that, we're planning on doing a baptism service coming up December uh, 2nd. No, December 3rd. 2nd's the praise night. That's Sunday. We had an individual that wanted to get baptized this summer, and it worked out that they couldn't. So Rich and I talked, and we're going to... It's going to be an inside baptism this time, just to make sure everybody knows. We're going to fill up the water trough, and if that's the only one that wants to get baptized, then that's the one we're going to have to get baptized. So if some of you missed... The September baptism, and you want to get baptized, we're doing one coming up December 3rd, let me know. Or if you feel inclined to get involved with that, the Lord's leading, let me know. So I wanted to throw that out there. But when they get baptized, there's going to be opposition. And not even with baptism. You, you may sit here this morning and say, okay, this, this message really hit me. I want things to be different. Well, guess what's going to happen when you go home? There's going to be opposition. What happens when you say, you know what, I really want to be that light and witness at work. I really want to be a different parent, a different spouse, different ministry leader. There's going to be opposition. The enemy will push back. So here's this exciting, amazing moment that the church should stop and rejoice. Peter comes back, and what he runs into in verse 2 is criticism. We have to be prepared for that. Sometimes when people are criticizing us, it is a sign that we're actually on the right path. So please remember that there. So Peter says in verse 4, explained it to them in order from the beginning. So what's going to happen here from verse 5 
through verse 16, Peter's going to recount everything we just went over in Acts chapter 10. Now, always do note this. If God is repeating himself, there's a reason. There's a big reason. This shows how important this event is. That the Lord says, I just told you the event in Acts 10. Now, through the Spirit, I'm going to recount the same story in Acts 11. Because this is such a huge, world-changing event that the gospel has been opened to the Gentiles. That does not mean that Gentiles could not have been saved before. But now it is officially doors open, come into the family. And that's why it's such a huge event. Verse 5. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. An object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners. And it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. It's like a spiritual picnic that God is offering him. Verse 8, but I said, not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean is any time entered my mouth. And we talked about that last week. You can't say, not so, Lord. You can't say, no, Lord. Those words are contradictory. If he's Lord, he's master of everything. Verse 9, but the voice answered me again from heaven. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. The Gentiles are now cleansed through Jesus Christ. Verse 10. Now this was done three times and all were drawn up again into heaven. Three times. Remember we said last week. Some of us are slow learners. Aren't you thankful for God's patience with us? I'm going to give it to you once. I'm going to give it to you twice. I'm going to give it to you three times. I'm going to keep telling you the same message again and again. Verse 11. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who would tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as they began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Verse 15, the same thing, guys, happened to them that happened to us. God is moving in their life like he's moving in our life. Verse 16, then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted the Gentiles repentance to life. Now, let's go back and talk about a few of these things here that we see. Verse 17. Who was I that I could withstand God? Who am I to fight this, guys? Cornelius had a vision, I had a vision, God brought these two visions together. He said, preach them, I preached them, the Holy Spirit fell on them. Verse 17, who am I to fight against God? Boy, we do that a lot as Christians, don't we? We know what we're supposed to do, we know what the right answer is, and instead, verse 17, we try to fight against God. I've shared with you before my secret special question I ask in counseling sessions. People come to me and they say, Pastor, I don't know what to do. I'm struggling with this. Here's the situation and here's my secret special question. I ask them, what do you think you should do? Nine times out of ten, they already know what they're supposed to do. It's the follow-through that's hard. Very few times in life do we really not know what the right thing is. God has given us 66 books of the Bible to be able to distinguish right from wrong. Most of the time, we can look at the situation, compare it to God's word, and say, here's the right path. The problem is, I just don't want to do it. So therefore, we start fighting God on it. And we start fighting Him in, in lessons and teachings and prayers and devotions and life. And next thing you know, it's mis- we're just fighting Him. So what happens in verse 17, Peter says, who am I to fight against God? This is what He's doing, then this is what He's doing. Look at the response in verse 18. Silence. 
It's an interesting verse in the book of Revelation where it talks about how uh, heaven goes silent during the book of Revelation. True silence is very eerie. We always like to have some type of background white noise going on. These guys were so stunned by this, their only response is silence. And the note, they glorified God. They were so, literally, the words were taken out of their mouth. We can't believe this is happening. And to God be the glory. Changes the world. Now, one other thing I want to do is this. I want to take a look at verse 16. But as we're looking at verse 16, can you go with me to John 14, please? John 14. See, in the middle of Peter giving this message to the Gentiles, it says that I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So as he's teaching these guys and sharing the gospel with them, the Holy Spirit brings to memory this verse. Take a look here at John 14 and look at one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit. Verse 26 of John 14. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. One of the most amazing things is when you get born again and saved in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. It's just mind-blowing to think that God takes up residence in you. In fact, we're called the temple of the Holy Spirit. That changes how we live, how we act, what we watch, what we do, what we say, to understand that God is there with us every moment of the day. That's why Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So the helper, he comes to us. We're never left alone. But take a look at what else he does in verse 26. He teaches us all things. That's why before we start the Bible study, we pray. That's before you do any devotions. I encourage you to pray. Before you do any type of talking to someone, you pray. Lord, teach us. I think a lot of times believers go into devotions, they treat it like homework, or they go into a message on a Sunday morning and they treat it like a have to. They walk away saying, I got nothing out of it. Well, maybe we need to pray. Maybe you need to pray personally, saying, Lord, use this time of devotions. Use this message. Teach me. What do you want me to hear? Let the Holy Spirit do that first. That's his role. That's his job. When when we don't ask him to do that, we're basically saying, I can do this on my own. I can't. Look at something else he does in verse 26. He brings to remembrance all the things I said to you. How could Peter, in the middle of that message, know to share that passage? Because the Holy Spirit brought it to remembrance. That's what he does. So therefore, when you're spending time in the Word, in the morning, in the afternoon, the evening, or on a Sunday morning, you may walk away from that devotional. You may walk away from that teaching saying, I got nothing out of it. Then all of a sudden, 5 o'clock that night, you're talking to someone, and that passage you read at 8 in the morning comes to mind. Why? Because the Holy Spirit brings that to remembrance. That's what he does. He asks us to be faithful to be in the Word. Just think of a couple of these verses. Joshua 1.8. Do not let this book of law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night so that you'll be faithful to do all things written in it. So the Lord says, you be faithful to be in the word, and I'll be faithful to bring it back to your memory when you need it. Paul said in Timothy, be a rightly dividing the word of truth. Be a workman that rightly divides the word of truth. You be faithful and obedient to be in the word, and the Holy Spirit will be faithful and obedient to bring it back to memory when you need it. I see too many Christians walk away from devotions and teachings frustrated, saying, I don't even remember what it was about. Did you pray beforehand? Did you give it to the Lord? Well, yeah. Was your heart open? Yeah. Well, Then he'll bring it back in remembrance when it's the right moment at the right time. And that's exactly what you see happening right here with Peter. What an amazing thing that is. Now, God can also do miraculous things. You can be in the middle of a conversation, and the verse just comes to you. It's like, I don't even know where that came from. Amen. But the system he likes to use is our faithfulness and obedience 
brought back in remembrance through the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what you see going on here with Peter. So now back to Acts chapter 11. The gospel is going to the Gentiles. It's now spreading like wildfire. Verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of the men that were from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. There's a lot of locations there, and if you have maps in the back of your Bible, you'll see they're moving pretty far up north. When you get to Antioch, you're getting to present-day almost Turkey, Asia Minor. You just see the gospel spreading here and going all over. And why is it spreading, verse 19? Because of persecution. Now, those who were scattered after the persecution. Now, we covered this a few weeks ago, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But this is what the Lord does. He allows difficult things into your life. Sometimes trials, tribulations, and persecutions, because it forces you out of your comfort zone. He scatters you. Now, this is his plan from the beginning. He's not hidden this. Back in Acts chapter 1, he says, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The problem was the church was pretty comfortable in Jerusalem. Why would you want to leave? So now this persecution comes and you see the church forcibly being moved out. And as they move out, now they get to represent Christ to other people. They're scattered like seeds. What does that look like for us today? I don't know, maybe you have a job and you're so blessed you got Christians you work with. Maybe it's even to the point of you got Christians at lunchtime you can have a little Bible stay with, you can have prayer. I mean, it literally is that perfect job. Then all of a sudden you get the phone call or whatever from the boss and they're moving you to a different shift, to a different line. And you sit there and you say, why? Because God just scattered you. That's a good thing. What do you mean it's a good thing? I had great people I worked with. We had, it was wonderful. I know. So now you need to take that light you have and go to a dark shift, to a dark line. We don't like that. Or what would happen if there's maybe a health issue that's going on and that's kind of laid you flat? So now all of a sudden you have numerous doctor's appointments. And you're going to be seeing the same doctors, the same nurses, the same medical people a couple times a week for the next six to eight weeks. You just got scattered. So now you're going to go see people and you get to represent Jesus Christ to them as you glory in tribulations. It doesn't sound very fun, does it? That's why in verse 19, they were scattered because of the persecution. Remember though, James 1, 1 Peter 1, those trials and tribulations are good things that take us step out of our comfort zone. We try so hard to stay in the same area, the same cliques, the same groups, to be really comfortable. And the Lord is constantly saying, yeah, I want you to expand out a little bit. Allow it to happen and see how the Lord uses it and moves. They are scattered, and so therefore the gospel is scattered. And what happens, verse 21, a great number believed and turned to the Lord. That's the goal. The goal is to impact eternity not to make our lives as good as we possibly can right here, right now. So, Lord, if we need to move a little bit, scatter a little bit, change a little bit, if it impacts eternity for the glory of the gospel, then we've got to be ready for that. Because that is really all that matters. Verse 22. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. So basically, they hear the stuff's going on. Barnabas, go check this out. When he had came and seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all with purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. 
And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarshish to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Boy, there's a lot in these passages right here. Let's take our time and break this down as we go through this. Because there's so much stuff going on. Let's take a look at the first thing. Note the order that's going on. Verse 20, they preach to them. Verse 21, they respond by believing. So what do they do in verse 23? They encourage them. Verse 23, they continue. Then in verse 26, they teach them. That's just kind of the progression, how it works. We preach, they believe. We encourage them, they continue in the faith. We teach them, and then we rinse, repeat, and do it all over again. That's the goal. Now, the preaching and believing part, that makes sense. That's sharing the gospel. That's being a witness. They preach, they believe. We preach, they believe. Excuse me. The next part, though, encouraging. This is where it gets hard. You know how hard it is to get in somebody's life and really just constantly encourage them. They're going through tough times. It can be draining. It can be difficult. It can be frustrating. It can be annoying. Jesus himself put his hands up in the air and said, Oh, worthless and perverse generation, how much longer shall I deal with you? Can you imagine that? Jesus did that. Can you imagine at home when the kids are going crazy, you just look up to heaven and say, Oh, worthless and perverse children, how much longer shall I deal with you? That doesn't sound very Christian, does it? But your Savior that loves you did that. He was frustrated. I tell you, it's difficult to be in that encouragement ministry of discipling, etc. But that's also where you see the most fruit. I've reached a point where the most fun I have, I love Sunday mornings. I love seeing you guys. What a blessing it is. But I tell you, when I'm doing a one-on-one with somebody in the middle of the week, and you see them get it and desire it and want to grow and go deeper, that discipleship, man, that's a blessing. So the next word then is after encourage is continue. Verse 23, they should continue with the Lord. That's hard. We don't want to continue with the Lord sometimes. Sometimes we convince ourselves that a different path is easier. Sometimes we convince ourselves that the old life was better. Think back to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Here are all these Israelites coming out of Egypt that were in slavery. And after a few weeks, they stopped and said, Oh, you remember how great it was in Egypt? Oh, it was great in Egypt. It was great being a slave in Egypt. Do you remember how great it was to be a slave in Egypt? They had convinced themselves that the other path was better. Same thing happens with us as Christians. We convince ourselves that a different path is better than God's best for our lives so we don't continue in it because it's just too difficult. It's too hard. That's why it's an ongoing process of preach, believe, encourage, continue, teach, and then do it all again. That's the way the system works. And what a blessing it is when it works. What else do we see in these passages? Verse 23. When he had came and seen the grace of God, he was glad. What made Barnabas glad? When he saw the grace of God. That's the only thing that brings joy to your life, is the grace of God. This world is discouraging. It's depressing. It's difficult. What gives us joy is the grace of God. When you keep yourself on your mind on the situation and not on the Savior... You're going to always walk in discouragement. You will. If you keep your eyes on the grace of God, you will be glad. Because you will stop and realize that no matter what, I have a home waiting for me in heaven. My sins have been forgiven. The Holy Spirit lives inside of me. I have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, 
selfishness, faith, self-control. You have all these things there. And so what happens is when you keep your mind on the grace of God, that's what helps you through it. I just want to encourage you. If you're going through a difficult time, what are your eyes on? If your eyes are on the scenario or the situation, it will bring discouragement. It truly will. If your eyes are on everything that's wrong at home, at work, at life, my health, you're going to constantly walk in that discouragement. But when your eyes are on the grace of God, you'll be glad. No matter what's happening, you'll be glad because you realize it's not about this earth. It's about eternity. We've got to get our eyes off this earth. We just got done on Wednesday nights a few weeks ago going through the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is a book where his guy, his eyes are always on this earth. And he's always walking in that discouragement. Why? Because his eyes are on the earth and not on the grace of God. Keep that in your mind as you go through that. Now let's talk about Barnabas here for a second too. Look at the description of Barnabas, verse 24. Good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. That's a phrase that you see in the book of Acts a lot. Full of. Now, in today's vernacular, if somebody's full of something, that can be really bad. People can be full of a lot of things. I've seen people full of anger. I've seen people full of bitterness. I've seen people full of greed. I've seen people full of lust. And they wonder why their life is the way it is. Look at the description here in the book of Acts, though. The seven deacons are described as being full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom and full of uh, faith in the Holy Spirit. Stephen's described as being full of faith and power. Tabitha was described as being full of good works and charitable deeds. Barnabas is described as being full of the Holy Spirit and faith. If you're keeping track at home, Holy Spirit is being mentioned three times, faith three times, then wisdom, power, good works, and charitable deeds each mentioned once. That, that's what you want to be full of. You want to be full of the Holy Spirit. Faith, wisdom, power, good deeds, and charitable works. That's what you want. But when you're full of everything else, anger, frustration, bitterness, selfishness, lust, greed, there's going to be joy, no joy. There's going to be no peace. Just imagine how you would be described in the Bible. Have you ever thought about that? I love it when we get these characters introduced and there's just like a one-word description of one-sentence description, verse 24. Good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. How would we be described for one sentence in the book of Acts? Man, I want to be full of all of that. And I get to choose. I get to choose what I decide to fill my body with. The Bible makes it clear that if the eye is good and full of light, the whole body will be full of light. If I allow into my life the good things of God, it affects everything. But if I allow into my eye anything bad, sinful, whatever, that's going to affect my life. And I tell you, the older I get and the longer I walk with the Lord, I'm not trying to get legalistic here. It is so powerful. What we allow our eyes to watch on TV, what we allow our eyes to read, what we allow our ears to listen to, that stuff comes in and it affects us more than we could ever know. Let the eye be full of light and the whole body is good, Jesus said. That's the goal of what we want. One last thing here in these little passages before we move on. Actually, two more things. First off, we're reintroduced to Saul. It's been about 10 years. I know it's only been a couple chapters since we last saw him in Acts 9, but really in the chronology of the church, it's been about 10 years. What has he been doing? Well, we know that he went into the wilderness for a few years. He had a little personal discipleship class with the Lord. But he's just been up here in Tarsus. Doing what? Getting ready, getting prepared for what the Lord had in store. I firmly believe that he was not sitting there doing nothing. I believe he was constantly getting ready to be prepared for what the Lord has in store. Because once Paul comes on the scene here in Acts chapter 11, he starts to take center stage for the rest of the book, and his life is nothing short of crazy 
for the rest of the book of Acts. But 10 years? Listen, there's going to be seasons in your life where it's just really, really crazy for the Lord. And amen to that. And then there's going to be seasons of your life where there's not a whole lot going on. I have learned that if I get up one day and there's no one in the hospital, there's no surgeries... There's nothing going on. I don't have a message to prepare. I don't have a discipleship class that day. The day really is clear. I used to go ahead and just try to fill it with everything I can. And I've realized now that, Lord, you're giving me a day to be rested up, refreshed, be in the word, be in prayer, because the rest of the week is going to get crazy. That's the Lord. He knows what's coming. Paul, I'm giving you about 10 years off. Because I'm asking for every minute, every moment of the rest of your life. That's what happens. I remember my uh, senior year in high school, I got saved as a junior. And my senior year in high school uh, was kind of a quiet year, if you will. Both of my sisters were in college. Uh, my dad was working third. Um, I didn't really do many extracurricular activities. And I can remember getting up very early in the morning, just having time and quietness and stillness in the house. And I distinctly remember I went through the book of Isaiah. And I still to this day remember how amazing that study was. Because... There was a time of preparation for what the Lord had in store. At that moment, at that time, I didn't think that I would be married just one year later. Because I didn't even think that was going to happen. There was a no relationships, no nothing. The Lord moved. I didn't think that just a year from that time, I'd be doing a Bible study in my home. I didn't think that in two years' time, I'd be an assistant pastor out here at church. I just thought I had a lot of time. Didn't have to worry about school. Didn't have to worry about life. Didn't have to worry about anything. And so I took all that time and energy, and I just said, I'm going to be in the Word. So every now and then I run into a young guy, and they're kind of bothered and upset they don't have a significant other. And I usually tell them, do you realize the season you're in? You're in a season to be in the Word. You're in a season to be in prayer. You're in a season of service and ministry. Well, I don't want that. I want to be in a season of dating. I get that. (laughs) But why don't you get prepared? Because you know what Corinthians tells me? When you get married, you have to start splitting your time between the Lord, your wife, and your kids. And it's completely different. It's completely different. And what we have here, sometimes you're in a season where there's not a lot going on. And our personality that we have, and, and this work ethic idea is, well, if i got nothing to do, i got to find something. The Lord maybe says, you got nothing to do, and that's for a reason. Because I'm preparing you for something bigger and better later on, and I need you prepared. And you may stop and say, okay, but the bigger and better never comes. Well, did you ever get prepared for the bigger and better? See, Paul got prepared for the bigger and better. Are you getting prepared? So if you're in a season right now where it's actually kind of calm and quiet, and I keep making these points about persecution and difficulty, and you're like, it's really not that bad for me. It's the best job I've had. I'm in good health. Things are going well. Amen. Enjoy the stillness. Get ready for what the Lord has coming. It's a season of preparation. Paul had it for about a decade. One last thing here before we move past these passages. Take a look at verse 26. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Christians, this is an important word. Literally means followers of Christ. That's what it means, followers of Christ. When you call yourself a Christian, you're saying that you follow Christ. What does that mean? That means that you believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and life, and no one goes to the Father but through Him. That's what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is what? You look at the teachings of Jesus and what He taught on marriage, what He talked about life, what He talked about Israel, you realize that's what it means, I follow that. What it means is when Jesus said in Hebrews, the volume of the book is written about me, that from Genesis to Revelation, that Jesus looked at this as God's word and that we should as well too. See, to be a Christian means a whole awful lot. But the problem is we throw that word around way too much. Well, I'm a Christian. 
Well, what does that mean to you? I think Jesus is pretty good. Do you? Do you believe he's God that came down in the form of man, died on the cross for your sins, so that he's the only way to get to heaven? So that by being a Christian, I've automatically offended five billion people? Because when I say I'm a Christian, I'm saying Muslims, you're you're not going to heaven. Buddhists, you're not going to heaven. Hindus, you're not going to heaven. Atheists, you're not going to heaven. And it's not that I don't love you, but I'm saying as a Christian, that's what Jesus taught. See, this is where it gets difficult. I've shared this story with you before. It's probably been pushing almost 20 years ago. It was one of those political talking head shows. And I remember watching it one time, and they had the different panels on. And they actually had the, the Christian. They usually have like a token Christian. And then this person, this person, this person. Most of the time, the token Christian is, is an awful. It's just nothing good. This guy was good. I wish I could remember his name. He was really good, really represented the Lord. And I remember him talking about this. They got into the subject of basically ecumenicals and religions. All religions are the same. Jesus is a good moral teacher. We can all learn from him. And the Christian stopped and said, well, wait a second. He says, Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. He's the way, the truth, and life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. And I remember the rest of the panel looked at him and said, Jesus would not like you saying that. And I'm thinking, you don't realize Jesus said that. (laughs) Have you ever actually gone and read the red words in your Bible of what Jesus actually said? Jesus actually says, I will separate the sheep from the goats. I will send some into everlasting reward and some into everlasting punishment. Jesus said that. Jesus said, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demon in your name, do miracles in your name? And Jesus said, away from me. I never knew you. Those are the red words of Jesus. So when it says I'm a Christian, I'm following Jesus who will separate the world from saved and unsaved. That's powerful. I'm following Jesus who said a lot about what life is, and marriage is, and Israel. I I mean, when I understand who Jesus is, and I understand that He accepted Genesis, He accepted the rest of the Bible, I'm really accepting a lot of what Christ said. So therefore, when you say you're a Christian, please understand what that means. The problem is now we have little two things about being a Christian. One, we have Christians in name only. They're a Christian, why? Because that's what they say they are. There's nothing to back that up. There's nothing to see that. There's nothing to believe that. They're Christians in name only. The other thing that we have is the buffet Christians. They like a little bit of what it says in the gospel, so they take that for their meal. They like what it says in 1 John. They even find some of the Old Testament stuff interesting, so they take that. But they kind of make the whole Bible this buffet where they accept what they want, and they say, who are you to judge me? Who are you to say I'm wrong? I'm not going to judge you and say you're wrong. Jesus will, because I'm a Christian, and I follow Christ. And I know what Christ is teaching and saying. So just be really careful in this world today where we have what? I think the last I saw, 60-some percent of Americans claim to be Christians. Please remember what that word really means. When you go out and represent Jesus at work, at home, at life, at school, what does it really mean to be a follower of Christ? Let's finish up this chapter, please. Verse 27. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. And the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Can you go with me to Luke chapter 6, please? So Agabus stands up. There's going to be a, pro- excuse me, there's going to be a famine that's going to affect the world. How does the church respond as you're going to um, Luke chapter 6? 
Did you notice what the disciples and the apostles did back there in Acts? Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. They see a famine's coming. What do they do? They collect stuff and send it to them. Just a famine's going to affect everything. This drought's going to affect everything. Here's the sad part about Christianity. We understand Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We get that. We understand that he got on his hands and knees and washed feet. We get that. We're supposed to be servants. But every now and then as Christians, we get a real me-first mentality. That we got to look out for number one. we got to take care of ourselves. There's a famine coming. Aren't you thankful that God loves us so much he told us first? So we can stock up and be prepared and ready. So when those heathens are starving to death, we can watch. Think about that. Sometimes that's that mindset we get. I see the disciples, I see the apostles, the famine's coming, and what do they do? We should get stuff around for everybody. We should help them out. There's not a me first. There's not a gotta look out for number one. There's not a take care of ourselves. It's like we gotta take care of other people. Think about what David said. I've never seen the righteous suffer for bread. God is Jehovah Jireh, the God that provides. Now, please understand, as we get ready to read Luke chapter 6, there, there's pendulum verses. I like to call them pendulum. That some verses go all the way over here. Some verses go all the way over here. They sound like they're contradicting. They're not contradicting. You're supposed to take them both at the same time and understand that there's a balance that comes out of this. And one of those balanced verses is we're supposed to be wise as serpents, as peaceful as doves. So therefore, we have a prophet come and say there's a worldwide famine drought coming. It's going to affect everything. Wisdom. I should be prepared to take care of my family. Wisdom. I look at what Joseph went through. Good years are coming. I prepare for the bad years. That's biblical wisdom. But sometimes we stay at that end of the pendulum. Look what Jesus says here in Luke chapter 6, starting verse 27. I say to those you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. From him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Oh, you want my jacket and my coat? Take them both. Verse 30. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. Just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. We have so much emphasis on staying in our own little cliques, our own little groups, our own little comfort zone. And Jesus is saying, yeah, it's easy to love those that are just like you. You know, we joke out here a lot that we want to be a missionary to the upper middle class. That's what we want. That's not sometimes what we're called to do. Verse 35, but love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Those are some pretty powerful passages. That is not a me-first mentality. That is not a got-to-look-out-for-number-one mentality. That is a mentality of, if there's anything I can do to represent Jesus Christ, then I will do that, even if that means I get walked on. See, here's the thing. As Christians, this is the phrase I use. Sometimes I'm a willing doormat. I know I'm going to get walked on. I know it's coming. And guess what? I'm okay with that. Because I'm secure with where I'm going for all of eternity. I know my rewards are in heaven. It doesn't matter what happens down on this earth. And so sometimes I'll get a phone call from somebody. Haven't heard from them maybe in months, maybe even years. And as soon as that call comes up, I see that and I think, yeah, I know why they're calling. 
They're not calling to say hi. They're not calling to say, James, I've been praying for you. I get that. So as soon as I see that, my first prayer, and I usually do this, it's a one-word prayer. I just say wisdom. Lord, wisdom. Wisdom on how to handle it. And I understand that they're going to come and they're going to ask and they're going to have a story. I understand there's going to be a lot of details. I get that. But at that moment, I'm praying, Lord, wisdom. How can I minister to them? What does it look like? I understand that I'm quote-unquote being taken advantage of, but I'm not. Because I'm going to look for an opportunity to represent the Lord. There's a famine coming. There's a drought coming. What are we going to do? We're going to round up supplies for everybody else. Because that's how we can go represent Jesus Christ and all we do and all we say. That's tough. But please remember the balance of that as well too. Wise as serpents, peaceful as doves. We get that. There's also a lot of times as believers we're called to take that step of faith and realize, Lord, you're going to meet our needs as we go and let go and sacrifice of things that may be hard for us because it's going to further the gospel and all that we do and all that we say. Worship team, if you want to come forward here for the final song. As the worship team's coming forward, let's pray this into our lives. Lord, it's one thing to talk about this. It's one thing to mark it, one thing to underline it. Lord, bring it to remembrance at the right moment, at the right time, as your word says. Lord, for somebody here going through a difficult time, I pray they could look at your grace and just be glad. If there's somebody here this morning that's being scattered and it's a difficult season for them, let them know that they're supposed to grow where they're being planted right now for your glory and your fruit. And Lord, help us. Help us just to do what you said, to preach it. They believe it. We encourage them. They continue it. And then we just teach it and do all again. Thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy. We lift this up in your name. Amen.